Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. Before we launch into our episode this week, I want to remind everyone that the O'Reilly Design Conference will take place March 19th through the 22nd, 2017 in San Francisco. Visit O'Reilly.com forward slash design con for more information and to register. Now to our episode. This week, I sit down with Noah Linsky, Senior UX Architect at Amazon Web Services. We talk about how design teams work within Amazon, telling stories with data visualizations, and why it's important to be both intentional and inclusive as designers. Enjoy this episode. Noah, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Mary. It's great to be here. I'd love for you to start off by telling folks a little bit about your journey into design and how it led to where you are now. I, uh, I grew up building things with Legos and thought I wanted to be an engineer. And um, I didn't want to get trapped in an engineering building for four years in college. So I went to a liberal arts college, uh, Reed College in Portland, and got a physics degree there. And while I was there, I realized that the piece of engineering things that I most was intrigued by was the interface. And I realized that there was uh, a lot of mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and um, industrial designers, that those were really well understood. And lots of that was out in the world. But the interface design was sort of this this magic little piece that uh, was still very hard to do. Um, and, and most companies were not getting right. And that was the piece that was most intriguing to me. So uh, that was in college when I really realized that the word designer was sort of the direction I wanted to go. Uh, I wrote software uh, at the end of the 90s and early 2000s, because that's what people did at the end of the 90s and early 2000s if they had physics degrees. Uh, and then I got a master's degree at the University of Washington here in Seattle in the department that's now called Human Center Design and Engineering. And that began my design career. Um, and I worked uh, various other places on and off. While I was at the University of Washington, I accidentally wrote about an 80-page master's thesis on bringing user-centered design approaches to uh, visualization, specifically to diagrams. Um, I naively thought that uh, quantitative visualization graphs, I naively thought that was a solved problem. I had a physics degree. We'd been taught graph best practices. Uh, I didn't realize the degree to which, one, those best practices were not evenly distributed, uh, and two, that knowing the right graph for a situation means understanding the situation. And that's uh, where a lot of design training comes in is figuring out what's actually going to be the right answer for your for your audience. So I wrote this master's thesis on, on diagram design, which was more of a qualitative, uh, squishy visualization space, because we don't have the same standards and conventions that we do with bar graphs and whatnot, that there's a few of them. But in general, those there's fewer of those standards and conventions to guide people who are trying to draw pictures of relationships rather than pictures of numbers. So I've, uh, over the course of my career, been gradually increasing the amount of visualization that I'm doing along with the UX work that I do. So uh, most recently, I've been at Amazon Web Services, uh, not quite three years. And I joined in the summer of 2014 as they were just starting a project which is now called QuickSight, which is the Amazon Web Services data visualization and business intelligence tool. And I was one of the early, early team members um, and helped design some of the features there. Like um, we have a feature called Autograph, which is the feature that uh, suggests what graph type you should use based on the data types that you're interacting with. And so I designed how, how that worked. I was officially not a designer on that team. I was a product manager which was an interesting choice of them to offer me and suggest that would be something worth trying. And I'm glad I tried it. And I'm glad I'm a designer again and not a product manager. Um, there's some, uh, I'd like the product strategy portion of things. I don't like the, uh, 
managing spreadsheets portion of the product manager role. So that didn't work out. Uh, that slice of the role didn't work out, but I had a lot of fun designing some of the visualization stuff there. Um, and then for about the last year and a half, uh, about a year and a half ago, I switched to the general UX group uh, at AWS that supports quite a variety of different products that AWS builds. And uh, awesome. uh, here I am. Here you are. I tell people, I tell people I'm not that kind of designer when <laughs> when they say, oh, you're a designer, um, because I have very, very, very shallow depth of knowledge when it comes to things like fonts and colors and typography and branding and all the sort of graphic design umbrella. And a lot of people go to the aesthetics immediately. And, and I say I'm a, I'm a functional or I'm a, stru- a, a structural designer. Like I design how it works, not how it looks. Not that how it looks isn't important, but that by the process that I use and I teach that aesthetic layer while important comes last um mm-hmm. the short version of, of, of what i teach in that regard is good frosting can't save a bad cake you got to get the cake right first before before the frosting can can actually make a difference i love it excellent excellent so can you talk a little bit about what the hiring process was like for you when you um when you joined amazon yeah, I mean, it was a little it was a little different for me because I had actually been referred. Somebody else who was already working here saw that they were building a visualization product and said, "You should go talk to Noah." So uh, I I was um, you know they were hoping that it would work out. It was a little bit of a different process, and I was actually really reluctant to talk to Amazon because I had worked at Amazon in 2003 as a web dev, junior web dev, and that was the last job I had before I quit coding altogether and went to grad school to be a designer. So. I just never expected I would come back to Amazon, so it was a little weird to be um, talking to them. But um, yeah, the, the, the way the way that uh, the process goes here for designers is you do uh, a phone screen or two. Um, you know, you, you you talk to you talk to some some um, peer or senior uh, designers to the role that uh, that you'll be working in. If the phone screen goes well, they bring you in for a loop, and you talk to a number of people, including again, you know, more more sort of peer designers and um, and the hiring manager do a whiteboard exercise, do a portfolio uh, review, um, and then uh, and then they meet in a room for an hour and talk about how it all went and decide if, if that's a hire or not. Interesting. Okay. So you have an interesting title, one that I don't see all that often, a senior UX architect. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about what that actually means. What do you do? My role is a little bit different than most of the UX designers here. And so I sort of, by the good graces of my previous uh, manager here, Philip Hunter, I, I managed to get a title, a unique title. There aren't other UX architects at Amazon. So the reason for that is when I first switched to the core UX team, I didn't own particular products of my own. Most of our designers own one or several products. So a designer might work on a few uh, of our storage products, or might work on a few of our database products, or might work on a few of our networking products, and they sort of own those. I didn't have a, a domain where I was owning that particular product category of uh, of, of the AWS services or offerings. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, but I did a whole lot of early on consulting for teams that were working on particularly big or particularly weird projects or teams that were trying to bootstrap a new project really quickly, but didn't have, had not hired a designer yet. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of sort of early stage coaching of these teams, uh, whether they had a designer or not in terms of let's make sure that our strategy is going in the right direction. Let's make sure that the information architecture and sort of the mental model with which we are presenting this product to the world makes sense to the customers that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, Design, like real user-facing design products, uh, that's a very young class of offering in AWS. This is only something that we've been doing for a couple of years. We've had interfaces for our consoles before, but 
uh, up until just a few years ago, everything AWS offered, you could more or less say, well, that's IT infrastructure. And so the consoles were that we built were really, you know, control panels at some level. And in the worst case scenarios, it was, you know, a, a UI that was painted on top of the APIs so that people could, could manage their storage, manage their compute, manage their networking. And as we've shifted into also offering real um, sort of end user aimed, you know, more, more productivity tools rather than IT infrastructure. So QuickSight's a great example. It's not a, an IT infrastructure tool. It's a, it's a business intelligence, you know, data analysis tool. And so the, the class of user for that is very different than it has been historically for AWS. And so that's one of many of these, of these user-facing UI-based products that we're now offering and developing. And as an organization, that's new for Amazon Web Services. And so uh, I got to sit in on a bunch of different teams that were in this young phase and help them really think about how do we, how do we separate the different functions of this product that we're offering because there's going to be different classes of users that are going to engage with it in really different ways, uh, that sort of thing. So that's, uh, that's where the UX architect label came from um, as opposed to being a UX designer. Excellent. Excellent. It sounds like fun. Hard work, but fun. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot, it was, it was good being able to, um, you know, to touch a lot of different things. Uh, I didn't get to go as deep as I would like sometimes, but it was great to be able to sort of see this, this diversity of, of all the different products that are, that are coming down the pipeline and be able to get to know some of the different teams working on them. That's awesome. Okay. So tell me a little bit about, and, and perhaps this is different by group, but, um, uh, the product teams, what do they look like um, at Amazon? Particularly, I'm interested in, in learning how, you know, engineering works with design, works with product. Sure. Oh, well, I'll tell you about it primarily from a, from a UX designer perspective. Typically, the way that that goes is that um, th- there's, there's sort of one, of one of two ways that that's set up. The, the first category, which I mentioned earlier, is as a designer, you would probably work with, uh, like I said, maybe the storage team, database networking, uh, Internet of Things. You're sort of the go-to designer for a variety of the product offerings that that larger class of technology has. And so you might rotate through, you might be working on two or three at once for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks at a time, get a new feature out, get a revision out, and then switch to some other product within that class. And those designers tend to sit with... Um, with the, with the big design pool, you know, all, all on the same floor, uh, all hanging out together. The other way that the designers typically work is there are there are some groups that are large enough that they have a couple of designers working on a single product. So, for example, QuickSight has a couple of designers, and when a product is large enough or has enough UI work that there's more than one designer full time working on it, they tend to sit with you know with the technology and with the product managers, uh, sort of dedicated full time within that group. And and typically the um, you know, as I said, we're we're a young organization when it comes to really uh, building a lot of these UI-based um, products. But it's it's a very exciting time to be here. You know, we have really good, really supportive leadership in the UX space. There's a real mandate for us to to build really high quality interface here. And so the designers are part of the very early conversations with product management and with the technology leadership. But typically, ultimately, it's the product manager who writes the spec of you know this is the product that we're building, but we we have process in place where that spec gets reviewed by designers who get to talk about is this the right product is this going in the right direction that's going to be interesting to implement why are we doing it this way and um and so it's a very exciting time to be here as these as these changes and these uh innovations are coming along and how we do this work and really bringing uh, designers to the table at the conversation as products are being not just implemented but conceived mhm mhm now a quick question uh 
are your product managers, are they coming from a technology background mainly or a business background or a design background or is it a, is it a combination? Um, tends to be a combination of technology and business, mm-hmm. um, not so much coming from a, from a design background. Um, so they tend to either be very technologically savvy business people or very business savvy technology people, but people who can, who can really, um, see both of it. And they do a lot of some things we might consider the designer's job in terms of, they do a lot of talking with our customers, everything we do, everything we build, it's all driven by customer need, customer demand because Amazon, right? This is what we do. So the the product managers are the people who own those customer relationships who are, who are out talking to the customers who are out getting data from the customers about what they need and where the, where the market's not meeting their needs. And they often are responsible for some of the early ideation of what the product might be. They might do some of the very first sketches of, you know, here's what it could look like. Those typically are more, are more, um, those don't go to production so much as those start conversations, right? And then you might get a designer who comes in and says, we're going to, we're going to put our standards on this and we're going to re-architect it a little bit, but I see where you're going there. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, shifting gears just a little bit here, you wrote, um, you wrote a book and you edited another on data visualization. Um, and yeah. I think that, I mean, one of the things that I'm seeing repeatedly is um, the importance of, of designers really learning and getting comfortable with working with, with data. Um, mm-hmm. but also being able to tell stories and analyze that data and really get it out there. I wonder if you have advice for designers who are interested in learning about visualization and, and, um, what, what kind of resources you would recommend beyond obviously your own, your own books. Right. So one book that I don't see really mentioned when people are talking about all the visualization books is, a. Uh a book by Stephen Costland called Graph Design for the Eye and Mind. And it's a very, very practical book based on psychology um, and, and perception and is really wonderful. You know, beyond that, I think uh, as a design discipline, visualization is fairly young. And the people who were notable eight, nine, ten years ago when I was getting started had this interesting, weird, we'd all come at it for in different ways, but we'd all ended up with a with an interesting mix of backgrounds or education that included some technology, some psychology, and some what people would think of as design in terms of the aesthetics or the typography or whatnot. Uh, the psychology about about perception and the cognition of how do people, you know, perceive the space. I don't know that that mix is quite as necessary anymore. I don't think anymore you need to be able to code or you need to know statistics to create good visualizations, um, mm-hmm. although absolutely those help. But I wouldn't say, hey, kid, you can't be a, you know, you can't design visualizations till you learn R. Like, that's just simply not true. There's there's plenty of tools that you can do it. Uh, the, the biggest flaw, um, really, I think, with with visualizations and how it's done today is that people lose sight of the user-centered design aspect. And so this is a thing that I have been writing about and teaching ever since I started talking about it and ever since I started writing about it 10 years ago when I was, or more, when I was working on my master's thesis is really bringing the user-centered design approach and this notion of what problems am I really solving with this visualization? What questions am I answering? And the, the reflexive, the, the, the quick and easy approach is we have some data, we're going to graph it, done. And, and that's a really incomplete process because that doesn't actually take into account who is my customer and what are their needs right now and what questions do they need to have answered right now. There's a pinned tweet, my pinned tweet on my Twitter account, because after a thousand times of people saying, okay, but what graph should I use? It's like, okay, we, that's, like, that's like saying like, well, what car should I buy? It's like, well, I, I need to know a little bit more about your situation. What <laughs> shoes should I buy? It's like, I, I need to know more about you. So I was like, okay, I can compress this entire conversation into one tweet which I did, uh, I could read it for you or we could just post the link either way. Please do read it for me. 
All right. So the tweet says, step five, what graph do I use? Four, what data matters? Three, what questions need answering? Two, what actions do I need to inform? One, what do I care about? And, and the fun part, the cool part is playing with the graph types. And so people want to start with like step four or step five. Like I got some data, let's graph it. And it's like that, that can be fun if you're exploring, if you don't know what it is you're trying to communicate. But it's much more powerful if you, if you know who your audience is or who your customer is and you know something about their needs or you know something about the problems that they're trying to solve. It's much more powerful to take that information into account before you decide what graphs to put up on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dashboards are a great example of people getting this wrong all the time and that the dashboard design often is people sort of, um, I hesitate to use the word, but people sort of regurgitating the database onto the screen and then saying, great, we're done and walking away. And that doesn't take into account the real use cases for dashboards, of which I think there are two, neither of which people designed for. The, the one is something's on fire and broken right now and I have to fix it and hide everything that seems to be relatively normal and only show me what's on fire. So there's sort of a troubleshooting crisis mode. I need to fix it is my goal. Dashboard, which is not well satisfied when you have 10,000 green lights that say everything's fine and you're <laughs> looking for the one that's not, quite, that's not quite fine. The other use case of dashboards that's a pretty strong use case is like reporting where it's the end of the month and we need to see how much money we spent and we need to look at our trajectories and how much storage are we using. And that's very not time sensitive. And we want the historical perspective and we want to know if things are going well or if they're getting a little bit out of out of expectation uh, value. And people don't build either of those dashboards. People build a dashboard of show me everything that's going on right now, just in case I want to check. Mm. Which to me is an expression that the designer didn't really take the use and the customer need into account as they were designing. And this is a very common problem when it comes to when it comes to visualizations. Sure. Sure. It just seems like a universal human problem, which is people easily get distracted by whatever it is they're into without really sort of backing up and asking why. Um, Yeah. And it's super cool. Like it's a lot of fun. Everybody loves to do it. It's just not right. You're just not going to get the functional result that you want if you don't really think about what is the result that you want. Yeah. Yeah. So what tools do you use um, in your day-to-day work? uh, When I say tools, I mean anything and everything from pen and paper to you know, software. I picked my desk so that I had a seven foot tall whiteboard on my left shoulder. Mm. Um, So I I do most of my rough thinking on my whiteboard right next to me. We are, um, we're pretty into the sketch ecosystem at AWS and Amazon these days. And so that's really nice because we've got our, uh, you know, our pattern library, we've got, you know, templates and whatnot for sketch. So that's really cool. And sketch has been a good tool. And there's a variety of other plugins that make our life better for you know, speed of production and ease of sharing and that kind of thing. And um, I have been using OmniGraffle for like, I don't even know when, more than 15 years. And OmniGraffle is really my tool of choice for things like um, swim lanes, architecture maps, that kind of thing. It's just, I always end up back there because I've used it for so many years and I'm so quick with it. And it's so uh, facile for the, for the kind of the way that I think there, which, which for me is a super critical, important piece of my thinking. Like I won't, I, I can't. I'm like, I'm like constitutionally prevented from drawing a piece of UI until I've drawn the architecture map or the user flow or the swim lanes or something because I don't know what goes there, right? I have to tell you, this is the reason I wrote like all the curriculum that I've done, all the teaching. It's because there's nothing more terrifying than a blank page, and I had to create a process. <laughs> I had to write down a process so that I knew how to do the steps because otherwise you're stuck in a blank page, and that's horrible. <laughs> That that makes sense. Uh, it's it's how your brain operates. So I get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So you're you're giving this talk at the O'Reilly Design Conference um, on uh, and your description is about 17 design approaches and conversations that will help improve a designer's odds of uh, of being successful. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, a couple of them, but also how you came to to these 17 in general. I came to those 17 through frustration (laughs) because of, because of like, you know, a decade in the design world and thinking, but you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And this is the beautiful part of my job is I get to tell people they're doing it wrong and, and they clap and pay me money to do that. Um, I I have absorbed a lot of, uh, a lot of knowledge and a lot of technique. I've read a lot of blog posts. I've read a lot of books and I have a piece of my brain that's pedantic about you have to do it right, uh, whether I want to or not. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of time pressure. Oh, we don't have time to do, we don't have time to do, um, you know, an architecture map, just, just draw, drop a quick UI, just, just make some, make some quick wireframes. And from the product management of the engineering side of the camp, you know, they'll say, just, just get us something really quick. We just need to start coding. And they don't understand the degree to which that is, ends up often being much more expensive in terms of the maintenance. So seeing these things happen and, and, um, you know, learning from all my design mentors, uh, about, best practices and sort of going down some weird accidental rabbit holes. There's a number of things in that deck that I discovered totally accidentally. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. How come the whole world's not doing this? But so the biggest problem, honestly, is I think people are, are working on the wrong problems. We, we have such a small focus uh, in terms of the products that we're building and the, and the solutions that we're providing. And, the, and the, the world has such a need for such bigger thinking and bigger innovation. And it's terrifying. It's overwhelming to look at these, these big, big, big problems. Uh, and then we go back to like drone enabled pet food delivery or something, you know? Um, <laughs> so if I was to pick one thing that I really wanted designers to do differently, I would say be really intentional about the problems that you're choosing to spend your life's efforts on. So there's uh, that covers a couple of the topics and a couple of the slides in my talk in, in terms of a little less pessimistic and a little bit more grounded in day to day. The two that I think uh, everybody should should do more of and would benefit more from one is draw your architecture maps, draw your flow maps, draw your swim lanes, like draw a diagram or a map of some kind, because there's you can you can see where you don't understand the problem when you don't know how to draw the map. And if you skip the map phase and go right to the interface, I guarantee it's going to be a mess. Like I've watched that happen where somebody even at the level of there's an icky part in the architecture map. And I'm like, what's going on there? And they're like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, yesterday, one of our customers called the PM and said they needed the feature to work this way. So the PM told us we had to do it. So we had to change it. And I'm like, that icky part in the map means you don't actually understand what the requirement is because the PM doesn't actually understand what the requirement is because they got it from the customer and they just threw it over the wall. Like the maps will reveal where the gaps in your thinking are. And if you think you can draw a good interface when you don't have those requirements defined, like it's just never going to work out. So use the map as a thinking tool, um, use a diagram. It's, it's, it's crucial. The other piece that, uh, this is one of the ones I stumbled into accidentally. I accidentally took a class in college. It wasn't the class that I thought it was. It wasn't about what I thought it was, but it was, uh, it was in the industrial engineering school uh, at the university of Washington. And it ended up being largely about this, this approach called axiomatic design, which is, a uh, uh uh, a theory put forward by a guy named Nam Su at MIT, and he's written a textbook. And it's essentially, it's this notion of really getting clear and separating the required functionality from the implementation. And we're super bad at that. We go to implementation right away. And and when I say implementation, I mean, if you can point to it, if you say a list, okay, now you're talking about implementation instead of function. And um, being able to really, really say what how those are separate 
gives you so much more flexibility and room for so much more creativity in the solution that you're designing. Because as soon as you say list or window or screen or app, all of those things tie you then to this particular notion of implementation and they remove from your imagination all the other possibilities um, of a way that this particular problem could be solved. And if you're talking about functions, you're not tied to a specific implementation. So an example of this from 10 years ago, I was working for a company and we're working on an, in, an internal tool and they said, and we need to have the list of all of our customers here, like the alphabetized list. And I was like, okay, like we, we can do that, but how come? And they said, well, you know, our internal agents, they need to be able to find like the five or eight of their customers that they're personally responsible for. So they need to have this list and they can scroll through and they can find their customers. And I said, our agents are signed in. Like we know who their customers are. Why don't we just give them the list of five of their customers instead of making them scroll through 200? And they said, oh, we can do that? Yeah, this is software. We can do that, you know. <laughs> um, they got very attached to this notion of list when what they wanted was, I need my customers. And, and by, by it, it, like it's this trivial example, but, but the whole design world is this way, by getting um, sort of prematurely attached to a particular solution. We all fall in love with our, with our clever solutions and getting prematurely attached to these particular implementations. We lose sight of, of everything that's possible. So always, always, always go back and make sure you understand the functions you need to, you need to implement before you actually start implementing. Interesting. You know, the, as you're saying that, I'm thinking to myself, so often you hear this theme around what really feels like human nature working against human-centered design. Because we all want to jump to the end, right, or solve it, but that's that's the fun part, right, right. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't say that because there's a lot of people, myself included, who really do find the process of really understanding the requirement fun and really understanding the need fun and really really boiling that down to its to its sort of barest essential self. This is the actual problem that we're solving today. I, I, I love that part completely. And I'm, and I'm not saying I don't love really, really clever UI as well, but I feel like the really, really clever UI necessarily depends on this deep understanding of what the problem is you're actually solving. Mm, interesting. Um, okay. So beyond your, um, beyond your own work there at Amazon, are there people or projects that um, are grabbing your attention that you find uh, their work uh, interesting these days? Oh, my goodness. Um, shout out to Brett Victor, who uh, his website is worrydream.com. And he's, I think, the most interesting and the biggest thinker about what design and interface and how humans interact with technology. He's doing the most interesting stuff I've seen in a while. Really, really fascinating, innovative work. And, and uh, if people want to talk about out-of-the-box thinking, which you can't do, it's your own box. But his box is much bigger than most of ours, I think. So his stuff is really great. The other person uh, I'm super excited about is Genevieve Bell, who um, came and spoke at Amazon a couple of months ago. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with her work, she was trained as an anthropologist and randomly met an Intel executive, I think she said in a bar and they had a conversation. He said, you need to come work for me. And so she's been at Intel for almost 20 years. And she, speaking of human-centered research, this is what anthropologists do, right, by definition. And the degree of big picture human thinking that she brings into conversations about technology and culture and design is just delightful and wonderful. Like she is, she is made of incredible sound bites. So one that's 
She's made of much more depth also than sound bites, let's be clear. But she has these sound bites that are devastating uh, in terms of how they shift your thinking. So in the talk she gave here, she had a few slides and showing these ads from the 50s about how, how amazing the future was going to be and, and you know, the, how fabulous the interstate highways were going to make everybody's life and all this. And she said, who's missing from the future you're designing? Because there's one kind of people shown in these particular pictures here that talk about the future. And there's a lot of people missing. And a contrast to this, for example, was, uh, and this was a revolution in its time when Star Trek came out, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a black woman flying a starship in the future. That was a radical social and political thing to do um, because it wasn't just all white dudes flying the starships, right? So this notion, uh, again, that, that that's in my, uh, in my presentation of who's missing from the future you're designing, she says, extends to people who speak different languages, people of different abilities, people of different gender identities and orientation, people of different ages, right? Like there's a different educational levels. There's a huge spectrum of people out there to solve problems for. And most of us don't think about them instinctively. Most of us have to expend a lot of effort to think about what that different experience is like, which is absolutely the role of the designer. Uh, and we're good at doing it along some axes. People who are more technological, people who are more business oriented, people who are less tech savvy, you know, people who are on mobile devices versus people who are on big desktop screens. We have a few little axes that we as, as designers and technology are really good at examining the user experience, but we're not so good at considering like all these other spectrums of the way that people exist in the world and what solving problems for them might look like. Interesting. That's a great question. Who's missing from the future you're designing? I love it. Um, One final question for you, um, sort of random, but I'm curious to know outside of um, your your day-to-day work there, how do you refuel, refresh? I ride my bike. I help other people buy bicycles. Like (laughs) I do sort of the personal shopper thing for friends when they're buying bicycles. Um, lately I've been, uh, baking bread mm. uh, and, I, and I like cooking. So that's, uh, that's been kind of fun. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Well, yeah. I mean, that, that goes hand in hand, right? Eat the bread, ride your bike. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yes. Yeah. You could say that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, Noah, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Mary. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can reach Noah on Twitter at Noah I. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. And be sure to leave a review while you're there. <laughs>